Welcome to the State of the Theory podcast. I'm Hannah. And I'm in India. And we are your theory doctors. Hello, Hannah. Welcome back. How have you been? Not bad. Hope you've all been well. Um, welcome to our newest, latest episode. In A which 70, number 70 something? It will be number 75. Wow. Approaching the 100 mark. Scary speed. What are we talking about today? Well, this is um, it's part two of a of a previous episode. Except the first part happened a long, long time ago. If you go through our back catalog, the archive, the archive, um, you will find an episode called "Mind Hunting with Foucault," where we use the theories of Michel Foucault, who we have used once or twice before. Uh, to talk about a uh, Netflix uh, TV series called Mindhunter. Uh, since then, Mindhunter has just had a second season launched uh, on Netflix again. Um, so we thought we'd resurrect this and talk a little bit about how the theoretical arguments we made for the first season uh, are applied to or, or don't apply to the to the second season. Um, if you haven't listened to the first season, first episode, um, we might suggest you go and listen to that first. Uh, you don't have to. Uh, if you haven't watched Mindhunter season two, uh, then there will be spoilers on this episode. Uh, if you are interested and you would rather have seen the TV season first, then we won't be offended if you turn us off now. And go and watch watch it first and then come back to us later. Bye, Gordon. At some point, we probably... This is the second time we've name-dropped Gordon and spoilers without explaining. Yeah. Do you want to... We did, uh, a couple of months ago, we did a we did an episode with a, a guest podcaster um, on spoilers and movies uh, at the start of the summer blockbuster season. And that guest podcaster was named Gordon. So whenever we talk about spoilers... And he hates them so much... That like they they hurt his soul so so every time we we mention spoilers we we name drop Gordon yeah like, even yes. though we spoil everything yeah we don't mind spoilers do we yeah yes uh, there will be spoilers on this show definitely um so do you want us to give want to give us a quick um summary of what we said about the first season of Mindhunter. Yeah, well, we it was one of the easiest things for us to talk about because the first season of Mindhunter was so perfectly mapped on to Foucault's concept of discourse. Um, and specifically because a lot of what Foucault was writing about, his a lot of his early case, case studies and kind of uh, examples that he was using had to do with psychology and psychiatry and mental illness. So the first season of Mindhunter was, it was kind of too clean in a sense. Like it was so easy for us. Um, it was like a perfect second year essay topic, really. Um, and what we talked about was, if you haven't seen Mindhunter and you're not that interested in watching it, that's totally cool. Uh, it's a TV show that f is based on uh, the the very famous book uh, produced by the FBI agent who essentially invented the term serial killer in the 70s. And he had been responding as part of a small team at, based at the FBI to a, a, 
what they perceived as an increase in a certain type of very violent crime that was often sexual in nature and it was repeated and they pathologized they like recognized a pathology to this kind of behavior and and decided that it was certain individuals who were uh engaging in repeat crimes in the same type and so they name it serial killer and I mean, it's a perfect example of the, of the creation of a concept that doesn't exist before. And by by manipulating the language to create a terminology, a typology, and a definition, and to gather evidence to support it, you can create a new category. And it was very common, Foucault tells us that it was very common to create new categories when the state, as a kind of organizing principle... Um, was creating itself in the 18th and 19th centuries. And so states would start doing things like taking a census or measuring a population's health via various forms of medical statistics and epidemiology. And by doing that, the state was actually creating new types of political categories in order to manage and govern its population. So things like gender and race and age, all the kind of standard uh, measurements of a population become politicized and they become more powerful. And we as subjects and citizens are rendered as being categorized in in all all of these various ways. But we haven't seen, you know, such such a kind of obvious and overt construction of an example of discourse but I just thought it was so good you know all of a sudden a serial killer exists in the 1970s and it didn't exist before Um, and so we talked a lot about the different kind of ways in which the show used language constructed uh, constructed a new format for language a new way of speaking about crime that builds up to the end to this kind of real category of the serial killer that wasn't real at the start. Um, so we talk about things like they don't actually show the crime. They talk about the crime and through that kind of rendering of the crime via language, it becomes, it becomes real, but it becomes evidence for the crime as being a signifier of a type of identity or subjecthood, that kind of thing. When we were recording a few weeks ago, we just had a quick chat of, have you seen season two yet? It's totally different from what we said season one was about. <laughs> Maybe we should talk about season two. Yeah, it's... Um, so, it it's interesting that you said it's totally different because on the face of it, it really isn't that different. It's It uses um, the similar combination of the same, the same characters who are part of the FBI's Behavioral Science Unit who are researching serial killers by speaking to convicted serial killers in in prison, uh, trying to find out how their um, how their mind works. Uh, there's a, there's a quote from one of the characters, Bill Tench, in the first season, where he's trying to get uh, support from the institution, from the FBI, uh, for their work. And I think he says something along the lines of, "How do we catch crazy if we don't know what crazy thinks?" Mm-hmm. Um, and they they carry this on, except perhaps there is a, a more of an emphasis, which was there in the first season as well, uh, of using the data they're getting from their research in order to actually solve crimes, to, to solve killings that are going on uh, at the moment, as it were. Yeah. Uh, 
and I, I guess the big difference or a big sort of at the superficial level certainly a big difference uh, between the two seasons is that there is a much more uh, explicit clear single case that runs through the season which wasn't really there in the first season yes uh, and the case in this in this season is the the child killings in Atlanta Georgia um which is the case they keep coming back to as they're trying to solve it uh you know multiple a huge number of number of uh, children mostly black and mostly black boys uh being being killed and because partly because they focused on the Atlanta child killings uh the second season as a result of that has much more to do with race than the first season ever did yes um and because i guess in terms of uh temporality their research is, has advanced a bit further now they feel more confident in the categories that they have established uh the second series i think works more towards testing the categories and the limits of the categories and what happens when you get people things events that don't fit in the categories that you've just established yes i do you just as a kind of way in do you like season two i do like season two did you enjoy it i did i did i um i got excited when i saw that it had launched and i started the first episode of the second season and then within a minute i stopped it because I felt I needed to rewatch season 1 first because mm-hmm. I I wasn't sure quite how much I remembered um and I hadn't remembered a, a lot so I went back and watched all of season 1 and then watched all of season 2 and I really enjoyed it mm-hmm. did you yeah definitely yeah. I liked that the show it seemed to be a, aware of an attendant to the fact that the first season is very overwhelmingly white and it what it it was taking place in an institution the FBI that that was extremely white in the 1970s and is to a large extent still quite white um in terms of it's it's kind of operating ideology um and so the show is aware of the fact that of course there are there are questions around race and questions around gender that they weren't asking because they were focusing on this particular kind of group of people working in a basement in the FBI and then spending time with individual serial killers around the country. What's the kind of key difference is it, it behaves more like in genre terms, a police procedural and certain of the early episodes in season one also do that, but they behave in, in terms of police procedural in an episodic way as opposed to in a serious, uh, like a series or serial way. So the, nice play on words there. The, um, it, there's an early case that gets them thinking where it's an open case. It's, it's deeply upsetting to the police officers involved and they have traveled to a location to assist as, as educators based in the FBI, not as people studying psychology. They're basically providing a training and they end up in a police station that is in the process of investigating investigating, uh, a crime. 
that is like deeply violent and really disturbing. So they kind of get involved in it and it gets them thinking. And that's the sort of catalyst. That case comes up again because in season two, in the second half of season two, Bill Tench calls back to those detectives and asks if the case had ever been closed and it, and it hadn't. Um, and it is, there's bits of the genre, but it, it falls away as they begin their investigations. Season two doesn't do that. It's, it's back in police investigations. It's back in police departments. It's back at crime scenes and they are behaving like police but they're specifically not police. They're a weird collection of FBI agents who aren't police officers and academics who are no longer academics. And so the show sets up a a different, while it's very similar in its formula and its approach, it it sets up a different genre, I feel like. Yeah, and I think part of the reason why that is so clever is... At the same moment when the show is questioning its own categorization of serial killers, it is also questioning its own categorization as a TV program. Mm-hmm. You know, what, what genre it will be. So in the second season, they interview a, a larger number of convicted serial killers. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ed Kemper, who they interview in the first season, comes back. But they also interview Richard Speck, they interview Charles Manson. And not all of these serial killers fit their criteria, fit their the characteristics. Uh, Manson in particular, uh, the, the sequence when they interview Manson is absolutely fascinating because, um, as I think we said in our, in, in our last episode, um, the central character, Holden Ford, who is the, the closest thing the, 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 the show has to a central protagonist, he is absolutely fascinated with Manson. He's been talking about wanting to interview Manson from the beginning. From the beginning. And finally he now has the chance. And when he gets the chance, he is excited in a way that the program asks us to critique. Mm-hmm. Right? We are not necessarily encouraged to sympathize with Holden's fascination with serial killers, mm-hmm. which which makes it different from many other films, TV programs, books in, in this genre, I think. But in spite of all of Holden's fascination with, with Manson, his colleagues on the team are, are really underwhelmed because they don't see that interview as having added to their understanding of the category of person they're interested in because Manson isn't in that category. Mm-hmm. And there is a, a, a fascinating way in which that has an effect on the way these serial killers are portrayed by the actors portraying them, who are, in pretty much every case, I think, fantastic actors. They do a really, really brilliant job portraying Ed Kemper and Richard Speck and Charles Manson. And before we turn the machine on, we were discussing how we both found Kemper and Speck scary in mm-hmm. a way that we found Manson not to be. Mm-hmm. There's something about the way Manson is portrayed that, makes him seem pathetic as opposed to terrifying. Uh, in, and, and again, that, I, I feel that that is very consciously done. The, the, the TV show is dramatizing its own suspicion of categories. Maybe suspicion is putting it too strongly, but uh, the, the way in which it feels the need to test its categories mm-hmm. is being dramatized 
in the way these serial killers are portrayed. Yeah. There's also um because some of the imagery in this show is it's macabre and it's dark but it is also very stylized. Um the way the BTK killer is uh the BTK killer if you haven't watched the show or if you don't know much about serial killer lore um good on you. Uh the BTK killer there's vignettes at the beginning of every episode throughout both series um showing aspects of the BTK killer's life and people who are fascinated by serial killers and there's a whole um like subculture really um of research and people who are just really fascinated by it in the in the way that some people are fascinated by celebrities you know and some of our listeners m- might very well be fascinated by serial killers um the 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 recognition amongst those people pretty much immediately pe- people were able to recognize it was a btk killer i didn't because that is not i don't spend any time on wikipedia pages of of true crimes or anything and so for me it took a long time before i realized oh there's something going on here narratively i should probably google this and see what the internet is saying who this guy is and then all of a sudden i was like oh this is really fascinating because there's a there's an element of stylizing the the lives of of the people involved in the in the show but there is also a critique of the dangers of doing that in the character of Holden, who who is deeply fascinated and finds connections with a lot of the people that he's studying. Um, yeah, so the BTK BTK killer isn't named until the second season. No, but it is generally well established that the vignettes with which pretty much every episode, I think, has started mm-hmm. uh, features this. Um, TV cable repair guy, I mm-hmm. think, who, uh, as I said, is, is, is well established that that is the BTK killer. I think by the time you get through the second half of the second season, you are probably expecting it to be the BTK killer mm-hmm. just because he has been named and nothing more is said about him. Mm-hmm. So in terms of genre expectations, you are expecting that, that to be a connection. Um, but those those connections are left implicit uh, in a way that, again, encourages us to think through the limits of genre classification as well as serial killer classification. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's another another element to the, to the way in which the, the stylizing of the BTK killer uh, encourages us to question the limits of categories, I think. And that is the the opening of the very first episode of season two, where um, for those of you who haven't seen this, uh, the man who we are supposed to think is the BTK killer, we don't know this yet, uh, is engaged in a sexual act by himself. And the woman who we assume is his wife comes in and discovers him and is horrified at what he's, what he's doing. And that that sequence culminates in what has clearly been resulted in a breakdown of their relationship and she hands him a book that is about 
precisely the classification of sexual perversions and how to deal with them mm-hmm. and the the way in which the the tv program makes it clear how discursive these categories are it seems to me therefore begging the question of the legitimacy of their foundation mm-hmm. right because at what point does an act of sexual and an act at what point does a sexual act become an act of sexual perversion mm-hmm. and at what point does it then lead to you becoming a serial killer are uh, all questions that are only ever answered through language yep as opposed to what you might call quote unquote evidence science science yeah and that i think is really really cleverly done yeah there's always the show uses the genre the the police procedural genre and the and the mystery genre to set up of a very fascinating and stylized story about a quite a suspenseful thing but it never it never f- provides any closure there's never any closure and partly that's practical there's probably plenty more seasons in the making but also it 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 never fully closes the storylines that in other tv shows you would expect or you could rely on and so it leaves like the btk killer sequences there isn't closure there and a lot of the storylines that you expect to be closed up are only partially finished or resolved and there's there's definitely a relationship between that narr- that narrative approach and the technical approach to constructing the show in that way and the relationship between evidence and solving a crime <clears throat> that it's not actually ever quite so easy to tie it up and often there is no closure at all and do you want to speak to the the perhaps the the moment the biggest moment where there is no closure the the ending of of season 2 yeah so season 2 ends season 2 is all set up um and it it details in quite a complex way the different stakeholders involved in the Atlanta child killings and the relationship between and it, there's definite references to the wire it, it calls specifically to the wire at a number of points and there's political figures there's community figures there's um a group of mothers that are advocating for particular types of action there's police and then the FBI gets involved and they create a wire type situation and it ends quite like the wire does with a final uh a final rolling of narrative text essentially at the end that says the person depicted here was convicted of the crimes that we've said they have been which don't involve the child killings themselves but it's assumed that the person has been locked away even though they haven't been convicted of these particular crimes nothing else has been resolved or concluded yes yeah, so the the atlanta child killer or, or the man who was convicted 
in the Atlanta child killing case was not convicted of killing any children. Mm-hmm. He was convicted of killing two adult men. Mm-hmm. Um and there is a significant body of opinion which we are in no way placed to judge that believes that 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 man wasn't responsible for the Atlanta child killings. Uh the killings did stop as far as we know after he was he was uh arrested and then convicted but there has not been closure in that sense no in that case the 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 kids who were killed have not formally been accounted, accounted for. for you know there there hasn't been a a a convicted killer um well and what's really interesting about the show because we were talking about this before we started recording the that's the end of season 2 season 1 one of the key ways in which all this works is the serial killers themselves tell the stories so the the relationship between the interpretation of the stories that the serial killers themselves are telling and the the acts themselves get interwoven to create the the concept of serial killer. So it's this this kind of back and forth and it is dialectic. It's a conversation between two parties, the FBI and the the serial killer himself. And this the story that gets told is a first person narrative. And so it is a it's a confession of sorts, but it goes beyond confession. It is kind in a sense it's an oral history narrative. It's a police interview narrative it's it it crosses those boundaries and the process by which it gets rec- totally recorded is what makes it real and in a sense that is we get used to and i think we don't you don't notice it as you watch the first series you get used to the reality of the crimes as having happened because the men themselves who committed the crimes are telling the story about how it happened and who the victims were otherwise you don't have a full picture with th- in season 2 you never get a story from a serial killer describing how and why he committed the crimes in the case of the atlanta in the case killings. of the atlanta child killings and so what you have is a is in mind hunter terms and mind hunter logic you don't have any sort of closure because you don't without that narrative and without Holden and Bill Tench there to witness it it didn't actually happen yet yeah it's th- that's a that's a really really fascinating point because what you get throughout Mindhunter instead of evidence is you get the material legacies of the interview right so you get the tape you get the transcripts you get in some cases you get photographs but what you mostly get is is the tangible elements of an oral history interview which is as you said essentially what it is um and it is it is there that the proof that the crime occurred and that this person did it occur rests in in those tangible bits that is where the the proof uh resides and because the man who was arrested and then convicted for for the murder of these two men never confessed as you said that the tv show as a whole 
isn't able to give us that closure because it doesn't matter how many bits of fiber or dog hair or DNA evidence or whatever other evidence that you could come up with. It doesn't matter how much of that evidence gets collected and presented before you. The evidence that you have been trained to accept doesn't exist. Yeah, exactly. And But what's really interesting is it, that doesn't matter for Holden and Bill Tench and the police. They don't need that proof. It's only us that need that proof because they are convinced that this guy is the guy. And so we watch them move towards a final end point of arrest, being completely convinced that they have the guy without needing that story. And what's interesting is we read this bit very differently, you and mm -hmm. I, right? You you were convinced that the ending was left open intentionally. In other words, you were convinced that the program did not encourage us to empathize with Holden and Bill in their conviction that, that they'd got their man. Mm -hmm. Whereas I read it as we are clearly being encouraged to accept the the guilt of this man mm -hmm. because the the evidence of his guilt is also the evidence of the ability of our protagonists, mm -hmm. right? Holden and Bill are good at their job because they've caught the man. And it is his guilt that proves that they are good at their job. Yeah. See, but, but my take is not that the show thinks of them as being good at their jobs all the time. That no, they are it, partially it good at their jobs, but yes. not always. And so there's always that possibility. Yeah. That what we're, and, and the show cultivates a distance, a critical distance, which is what creates the impact of some of the stories themselves. And I found that in the final episode, there is a critical distance in a way because you're watching these two, these two kind of groups, the, the um, suspect and then the whole police and FBI team trying to arrest him and I felt like I wasn't connected to it and it, it's exciting of course and you want to find out what happens and how it how it plays out but but as a kind of a sort of feeling of yes or no I didn't feel like I was being forced or asked to say yes or no agree or disagree I felt like I was watching a more accurate depiction of essentially the limits of a of a police investigation and the limits of evidence without either a confession or eyewitness. And I mean, that they're the two thirds, the same thing, a confession and eyewitness essentially cr create the same thing. Um, and it, it reminded me, it reminds me very much of, of some of the work on the history of science and early, early developments in ideas around what constitutes evidence and proof of reality. And, you know, back in the day, you had to get a group of gentlemen together and they had to sit in a room and watch an experiment and judge it as being a, a worthy experiment. And then they'd all go out and tell all their friends and say, yes, Robert Boyle did his thing and he's, you know, changed the way we understand the world. And, you know, it's this kind of, sociology of science 
type reading. And there is a, there's always in, in that academic literature, there's always a, a kind of recognition that there's limits to that way of identifying evidence and proof. And there's limits to, to how science determines what's real. I should stress that when I, when I thought the program encouraged us to think of his guilt, mm. I, I wasn't thinking of the guilt of the, the actual man in history. Mm. I, was, I was thinking of character. the character. And that's important to specify because the show as a whole puts a lot of store in historical accuracy. Mm-hmm. I've seen split-screen videos. We mentioned Ed Kemper in passing. Mm-hmm. I've, I've uh, seen split-screen videos where, on the one hand, you have the actual Ed Kemper's interview footage, and on the other, you have it as depicted on Mindhunter. And they are remarkably similar. Um, I don't know enough to know if, if all the interviews are verbatim, but there is a lot of work that has gone in in... To, to make the interviews as historically accurate as possible. Mm-hmm. Which, of course, explains on a purely factual level why the ending of season two didn't have the closure because the Atlanta child killing case wasn't closed. Yeah. You know, it, it, it wasn't, uh, there wasn't a resolution. Um, but, of course, they selected that case to focus on, knowing that there is that lack of closure. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think there is a particular race inflection in, in this lack of closure that we haven't really discussed yet. Yeah, go on. Um, once the show has established, which it does quite early on and quite well, the discursive nature of categories and the... Dis- the, the discursive, the, explain that for the, the kids y- at the back. You are better off at, dis- at explaining discourse than I am. Uh, yeah, discourse. Yeah, discourse is is essentially the way that the way that language technically, as a kind of structural thing, constructs reality. Yes. Yeah, so the so the idea is that um, there have always been people who killed lots and lots of other people for a variety of psychological motives, but until we came up with we as a as a species came up with the discourse, the language, the words, serial killer, that category didn't exist. Yeah. And that the experience of the killer, the experience of the victim, the experience of witnesses, the experience of the police, the experience of the media, all of us, that the experience of all of us connected to any one incident of serial killing is now fundamentally different because the language surrounding serial killing has now been established. Yeah. So when you say discursive, it's shorthand for that process. Yes. Um, so the the show as a whole sets up the category of serial killer as a discursive category, right? Through the through the language of the investigation, through the language of the interview, through the language of the analysis, all of that sets up this category as a discursive category. But because it is a discursive category, it comes into collision with other discourses. Mm-hmm. So part of their definition of a serial killer is someone who typically doesn't cross racial lines. In other words, when they get word of a, 
of a case in Atlanta where lots and lots of black boys are being killed, they're the the number one criteria on their profile of who the who the the killer most likely is is that he's going to be black. Mm-hmm. Uh, when you have a black community living in the 1970s in the deep south in America who are going through this horrific situation of their kids disappearing one after another, they go, it's clearly the clan. Yeah. Because... Who else kills Who us? else kills black kids, right? You, you as, as members of a black community who have lived with and under the clan for decades they go well this is clearly genocide right mm-hmm. who wants who wants there to be fewer black people in the world not black people not black people yeah and you see this this collision between these two different discourses mm-hmm. and they hit against each other and there is no resolution mm-hmm. because the first principles of both discursive categories are so diametrically opposed to each other mm-hmm. and in that opposition is the 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 questioning of the categories themselves i think yeah the limits the limits to which we can use the concept of a discursive category in order to understand reality and i think specifically in this case to use it to treat some sort of identifiable social problem um that there's a there's a medicalization and a scientific sociologicalization or sociological impulse here to fix a problem, which of course is how the uh, unit justifies itself, that they can stop serial killers. And it becomes especially heated in situations where an intervention is trying to be made or is being attempted and it's weird because we're talking about how the, the FBI team turn Atlanta into a lab, into like a little, and they don't turn it into a field site, which is a, a different type of, of scientific space. They turn it into a laboratory. And the people that they encounter in Atlanta, especially the black people, push back against the process. They know it's being, they know they're doing it. And they say, you know, we are not a lab. We are not we're not just any kind of urban community of African-Americans. We're black people living in Atlanta and we know our communities. We know our neighborhoods. We know our kids. We know these families. We know our politicians. You can't just come here and treat us like a sterile scientific lab where you can conduct your experiments. And and part of that sterile scientific lab is that it is interchangeable, right? And Mm -hmm. that's, that's in, in one particular sequence that is, that is, a mistake that Holden clearly makes because mm-hmm. he's trying to identify what he already believes that no black kid will be could be encouraged to enter a white man's car because as soon as the community sees a white man talking to a black kid the community will will react against it mm-hmm. or or will will notice it as different and therefore and therefore comment on it yeah he tries to identify suspicions so yes. he basically says african-americans are, are suspicious of a white person they don't know in their neighborhood talking to their talking to their talking child. to their kids um 
and he 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 does these experiments with black men and with white men and the none of the experiments with white men work out because the kids can't be persuaded to to enter the enter the cars except he does this experiment in baltimore because as a white man working for the fbi he doesn't recognize the difference in the lived experience of a of a black community in baltimore versus the black community in atlanta and that, that you need a you need a a, a black FBI agent to point this out to him that says mm-hmm. you know the south is different atlanta is different uh and again i think there is a sense in which the categories are being tested mm-hmm. you know to to what extent is blackness as a category sensible mm-hmm. when black lives in atlanta differ so markedly in terms of their experience from black lives in baltimore mm-hmm. um and if you take this to its logical conclusion which it the the program sort of does but then then leaves up to leaves up to us one of the discursive categories which we are being asked to question is race mm-hmm. right what what does it mean to be of a particular race what mm-hmm. does it mean to have a raced experience and therefore what does it mean to cross racial lines or not when it comes to serial killing yeah and even that that concept of crossing racial lines is the language itself reinforces and reifies that that way of categorizing it's really interesting because the show does in the first season i think does deal a little bit with whiteness um because they they claim to identify this key feature of serial killers that they kill people of their own race and they also identify that most serial killers are white but there's also clear you mentioned an example in the the second series holden is racist and there's the show is very clear at kind of showing the glimpses of his kind of everyday everyday racism coming out um and Bill Tench as well has moments of racism but they're less important for the narrative I think ultimately and Holden is racist and there are clear moments where you are you're actively forced to confront the fact that he is Do you want to give an example? Racist. Well the so the the example of sending sending his his friends from work in to communities basically he sends them into playgrounds in Baltimore to try and pay kids to get into their cars with them for, for one like terrible and and the assumptions that he makes about about the 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 kids their families and then of course his his you know white coworkers and and, that, and and part of that i think is why that is important is that racism clearly gets picked up by the black community in atlanta mm-hmm. who then connected to their insistence that the serial killer must be black yeah. so the the arrest of a black man gets added to a longer narrative of racial oppression 
which is a matter of so sort of a commonplace thing mm-hmm. in Atlanta at this time, right? So the and uh, the 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 wire example I think is is particularly crucial here, right? That uh, it's 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 a it's a wonderful coincidence. I'm not sure it's more than coincidence, but it is a wonderful coincidence that the experiment happened in Baltimore. Mm-hmm. Um, the the idea that even though the black community is fractured in the sense that there are now black leaders, you know, the mayor is black, the political leaders of the town are black, but the intersections of race, class, power are working in such a way that paradoxically on the one hand they are um, challenging the coherence of blackness as a category Mm -hmm. while exacerbating racial oppression. Yeah, and and that's the that's the painful irony of the situation within which the FBI, in large part due to its own institutional racism, can very easily be plugged. Yeah, and and all of its pseudo scientific sociological discourse that it is so proud of gets plugged straight into this narrative of historical racism. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And there's another, there's one serial killer in season two who's a black man. And Holden insists that they don't need to speak to him because he's not going to help him because he's not intelligent enough to be able to identify the crimes that he committed and be able to speak in an articulate way like Ed Kemper, his favorite one, his favorite serial killer. Or Speck. Or Speck, yeah. Speck is really... Yeah, a, a huge favorite. For and of course, he's obsessed with Holden. Is obsessed with with Charles Manson as well. Yeah. This kind of very, you know, it's a, a the Manson killings were rich, the children of rich people in Hollywood, and the the killings were members of the Hollywood community. You know, it's this, it's very it's very white the the story around Manson. He's a white supremacist, and so Holden moves is fascinated by and attracted to the white serial killers and and white aspects of their crimes. And he refers to this African-American serial killer as too stupid. And it's very clear moment of racism where his own, his own kind of ingrained racist thinking leads him to reject the possibility that this black man could even be a subject in his study. And then the conclusion that we are inevitably left with is at the very least the strong possibility that that same kind of racist rejection is is now applying in to Atlanta, where, mm-hmm. you know, is what is it that is preventing the the FBI from even considering the possibility that the killer here might be white? Is yeah. it true tested fact i'm using scare quotes throughout this that serial killers don't cross racial lines or is it a similar kind of judgment Mm -hmm. that it can't be a white person because only black people would kill other black people Mm -hmm. right that's mind hunter yes um we don't know if there'll be a third series if there is one we might come back to this yeah um and carry on more podcast episodes of Mindhunter. Um, hope that was of use. Hope that was interesting. Uh, let us know either way. And we'll catch you next time. Bye. Bye.
We hope you enjoyed this episode. I have been Hannah Fitzpatrick. And I have been Anindya Vichaudhvi. You can contact me on Twitter at Dr. H. Fitz. And me at Dr. Anindya R. Our show is on Facebook at State of the Theory Podcast and on Twitter at Theory Doctors. Our music is provided by the Agrarians and this has been State of the Theory. Thank you. Where would we be?